Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Erica Abrams Locklear about her book, Appalachia on the Table, Representing Mountain Food and People. Erica is a professor of English and the Thomas Howerton Distinguished Professor of Humanities at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. She is also a seventh generation Western North Carolinian. Welcome, Erica. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this book with you. Yeah, so I'd like to get started by getting to know you a little bit better and your background. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to be interested in Appalachian foodways and literature? Sure. Um, so, so as you said, I've, I grew up in Western North Carolina and my family has been here for a long time. Um, as an undergrad, I went to UNC Chapel Hill and majored in English and I loved my classes, but I didn't really know that there was such a thing as Appalachian literature. I was assigned some short stories by Lee Smith, um, who's from Grundy, Virginia, but lives um, in Piedmont, North Carolina now, but they weren't mountain stories. And I didn't discover her writing and Appalachian literature until I had finished undergrad and was actually living in Utah, of all places. Um, but I, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I've always loved food. I've always loved reading about and thinking about and eating um, food. So when I finally figured out there's a whole um, discipline, an interdisciplinary discipline called Foodways, where scholars study not only the production of, but a lot of the cultural history and culinary history of food, I was hooked. Yeah, I, I love the idea of using literature to study Foodways. And I have a lot of questions about sort of the pros and cons that go into that. Um, And this might be a good place to go ahead and start in the first chapter of the book, talking about how literature can kind of reflect and shape the foodways of a region. Can you talk a little bit about how things that were written about Appalachia affected how people ate or how they were seen? Yes. So, um, There's been a lot of scholarship and a lot of work um, done by historians, sociologists, literary scholars 
around the idea of Appalachia. So, you know, if you sort of try to start at the beginning and ask yourself, when did the rest of the country start thinking about Appalachia as a distinct place, as separate from the rest of the American South? Most people agree that it was in the years after Reconstruction. And there's one scholar in particular, Henry Shapiro, who wrote this book called Appalachia on Our Mind in 1978. Uh, It became kind of a seminal text for the field. And one of his primary arguments is that literature written during that time, so 1880s on through the beginning of the 20th century, was really foundational in shaping national perceptions of the region. And a lot of that has to do, too, with audience. So there were a lot of local color stories, and I'm happy to talk more about that genre if if you want to, and travel narratives published in places like Harper's Monthly or Atlantic Monthly or Lippincott's. And the audiences for those publications were primarily of a higher socioeconomic class and had received at least some level of formal education. And a large body, not all, but a large body of that readership was in New England. And Shapiro's argument is that these stories set in so-called exotic locations, like the swamps of Louisiana, like Kate Chopin's work, or um, the Mountain South, were really appealing to those audiences. And so tons of work's been done about that, but I realized that no one was talking about food and depictions of food in those stories. And it didn't take long to figure out that in these often deeply problematic and stereotypical representations of Appalachian people, there were equally problematic representations of the food that they were consuming. There was this sort of parallel equation set up so that if the people were coarse, then so too was the food that they ate. Yeah. Um, And I think the audience that these writers are writing for probably matters also. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Is there, when you use literature to look at food ways, what are kind of the pros and cons of that? Because ultimately it's fiction. Yeah. So on one hand, you can, um, figure out a lot about how food is being represented and how readers of that fiction then come to view a place, whether or not it's real, right? Which is kind of the the whole argumentative thrust of of chapter one. Um, A lot of those stereotypical depictions of degenerate, lazy, illiterate, incestuous, moonshine-making, feuding hillbillies, really did a lot in forming uh, popular opinion about people in the mountains and was even used in anthropology classrooms on into the 1960s and 70s to teach students the so-called ways of people in the mountains. So it was deeply damaging. So when you have depictions of food that are also fictionalized, the same sort of trickle-down effect happens so that that food becomes 
denigrated, kind of looked down upon. And there's been a huge shift, which I hope we can talk about, so that the food that was once denigrated is now celebrated. Um, So I think to get to your question, one of the pros of looking at representations of food in literature is to think about how those representations shape reader perceptions of what's being depicted. Now, the cons of that is that, like you said, it's fiction. So these are not oral histories. These are are not statistical overviews that really give you a whole lot of insight into production of the food or labor or things like that, unless you've got author interviews and they're telling you that what they wrote was based on real life research. Yeah, it sounds like it's... It's a maybe neglected part of food waste research, thinking about the perception created by all these outside um, influences. And in this case, it would be writing. Yeah. And those fictionalized descriptions can also um, really encourage readers to think about race and social class and gender dynamics and politics that are at play, um, you know, I'm thinking especially of Southern writers like Carson McCullers. There's so much going on in those depictions of women working in the kitchen. Um, and I think those lead to really productive conversations. Yeah. Um, one, one little sort of vignette, I guess, you put in the first chapter that I was new information to me and I found really interesting was about bananas. Oh. <laughs> and... I loved that because I think it's a really good example of not considering maybe the context in which people live. Yeah. The banana story um, kept popping up. Bananas are like everywhere it seems like. And um, so, so for folks who haven't read that section Yet in in chapter one, uh, I'm talking about local color fiction and travel narratives, which were theoretically meant to be read as true, but really they're creative nonfiction because you've got somebody who's gone on a trip and then they're writing their account of it and they can embellish, you know, as they see fit. But this writer, James Lane Allen, um, who was from Kentucky, but he was from the western part of the state. He was from the bluegrass region, so not the mountainous region. Um, had took a trip, had taken a trip, and uh, he only published, if I'm remembering correctly, two works about Appalachia, but his editors were really keen on him doing those stories. They liked what he wrote about Appalachia. And he had gone to Burnside, Kentucky, which is also where Harriet Simpson Arno is from, who I also write about in the book. And uh, he was saying that the railway had not come through that area for that long. It was still relatively new. But thanks to that, um, an entrepreneur had opened a fruit stand and he had bananas at the fruit stand. And according to Alan, he was at the fruit stand and this local mountain man shows up and sees the bananas and says, blame me if they make the darndest beans I ever seen because he's never seen bananas before and he thinks they're giant beans. And so the, you know, the implication is that this man is a buffoon, that he's not civilized, he's not sophisticated. There's a drawing of him and the bananas in the narrative. And he's um, really tall and lanky. His uh, 
pants are ragged at the bottom. He's not wearing shoes. And it's clear that we're supposed to laugh at him. Um, but I'll never forget this. I uh, was talking with Ronnie Lundy, who's um, food writer extraordinaire, knows everything about Appalachian food. And she said, you know, he may have been playing Alan for the fool. He may have been well aware of what Alan thought about him and just kind of gave him what he wanted. And I also did a lot of research about bananas and learned that at this point in history, it's actually really remarkable that there were any bananas in Burnside, Kentucky, because they were an exotic imported fruit. And unless you were on the coast with a major port, so Charleston, New York, New Orleans, um, bananas didn't keep very well. And unless you had real cars to get them where they were going in pretty short order, you didn't have bananas at all. So instead of recognizing this obvious sign of modernity and progressivism, Alan instead uses it to make a joke about a man who's never seen them before. That's so interesting. Um, and they show and up th- again in other chapters. They're just everywhere. So we can segue from bananas to uh, the second chapter, which is really focused on the the rhetoric that progressive era reformers sort of used when talking about the mountains. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So chapter one was really trying to figure out um, how those representations of food in local color fiction and travel narratives shaped perceptions of Appalachian people and the food that they consumed. But at part of the same time that all of those stories were being published, there's also this um, just national wave of progressive era reform going on. So you've got educators setting up mission schools in the mountains. You've got a really concerted effort to raise literacy rates, to improve sanitation, especially with drinking water, to improve um, hygiene, to teach nutrition classes, just this push really for um, better living, especially in impoverished areas and especially in rural areas. And so that included the Mountain South, but it was not focused solely on the Mountain South by any stretch. But one thing that I wondered, um, you know, I thought, okay, if this is how riders are imagining the Mountain South and the food that people ate, then how are progressive era reformers writing about the people that they're trying to help? And how are they writing about the food that they're eating? And one thing that I was aware of, but I, I didn't expect it to have such an impact on the writing is that I knew a lot of the public facing documents produced by those reformers were really geared towards fundraising. So that if you are ministering to a particular group of people, then one of your main goals is to raise money to help with your efforts. And so that really affects what you write about. It really affects who you write about, and it really affects what you leave out. So you're not going to write about the people who don't need your help because they don't need your help. (laughs) Um, You are going to focus on the folks who, for example, have pellagra or who have contaminated drinking water or um, who have food shortages, et cetera. So 
I, I thought my idea for the chapter was really good. And then I got into it and I was super overwhelmed because it was way more material than I could deal with. And I realized that you could focus the whole book or more on that. So I ended up doing um, case studies of three particular, um, either individual or sets of people. So uh, the first one was um, John uh, Campbell and Olive Dame Campbell, his second wife. And they are famous for a lot of things, but one of the things they're famous for was this trip they took in the mountains in 1908 and 1909. And they took a lot of notes about it and they wrote a lot about the food that people were eating. Um, the second case study is William Goodell Frost, who was president of Berea College for a long time. Um, if I'm remembering right, I think it was 1892 to 1920. He had a really long tenure there, did a lot in terms of um, establishing ideas about Appalachian people. And his second wife, Eleanor um, Marsh Frost, or Nellie, as he called her. And then the third person is Thomas Robinson Dolly, who is much lesser known, who uh, was very controversial during his time. And still today, if anybody knows who he is, um, he had the idea that you could solve the so-called nutrition problem in the mountains by sending people to mills and textile mills. And he was also in favor of child labor. Um, I know. So he travels to these places and he chronicles supposedly what he sees in subsistence-based economies in the mountains. And then he chronicles what he sees in the mills. And he's convinced that mill life is better. But the thread that puts all of these together, what I realized when I read all these documents, is that the more public the document becomes, the less nuanced it is. The more homogenized, the more blunt, the more dire the situation seems in those public-facing, fundraising-oriented documents. But when you keep drilling down in archives to drafts of conference papers or diary entries that Nellie Frost, for example, wrote in her trips through Kentucky, what you find is a much more varied portrait of food in the mountains and huge differences in social class and food availability, all kinds of things. Yeah, that was my next question. If there are any kind of counter narratives around this time that maybe don't paint mountain people in that light of needing help? There are lots and they're not easily accessible. <laughs> um, so one example in chapter one actually is a writer, um, David Hunter Strother or Port Crayon, who was publishing um, stories and also illustrations. He was a well-known illustrator in the 1850s which are very complimentary. Um, he writes a lot of very positive things about East Tennessee in particular, um, in Jonesboro and Johnson City. Um, but in the progressive era chapter, really where you find a lot of that information is in the archival materials. So uh, one very good example is Eleanor Marsh Frost. Um, she had a huge role in Berea College and she um, advised uh, curricular reform and had some really strong ideas about what she thought students should be learning at Berea and what would equip them to sort of move into the 20th century 
country in healthy and productive ways. She was notably not condescending in what she noted and what she wrote. And she took all these long trips mostly by herself with like one or two traveling companions on horseback. She kept these detailed um, diary entries chronicling what she saw. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the reading room at Berea and was just blown away. I mean, her, her diaries entries are here. And in one valley, she would chronicle just really terrible poverty and um, malnutrition and just really a, a sad situation. And then the next day she would ride into another valley and it would be the complete opposite. She would talk about a really well-equipped home with a lazy Susan serving thing on the dining room table and nice silverware and all these utensils and a multi-course meal. And she wrote what she saw. Um, she wasn't interested in raising money for the college. That wasn't her job. She was interested in seeing what was actually going on and then making curricular suggestions based on that. So they are there. We just have to really dig for it. Yes. Um, does that kind of increase? I'm, I'm kind of segueing into chapter three in the Live at Home program which feels like a continuation of that sort of progressive era attitude. What, what were the critiques of that? And actually, maybe first, if you could tell me what the Live at Home program was, and then maybe we can talk about some of the critiques. Yeah, so I, I will be honest, I had a hard time with chapter three. I knew what I wanted to do, but I had a hard time getting things worked out. But in, in the end, it became one of my favorite um, things to write about and, and to research. So chapter one, fiction, travel narratives, chapter two, progressive era reformers. And then I wondered, okay, well, moving forward in time. So now we're like in the 1930s. What were fiction, what did fiction writers think about all that? If you're writing about Appalachia, whether or not you're from there, how do you build on all of this material that's been disseminated nationally about this place and this people? And after a lot of false starts, <laughs> um, what I ended up writing about was something called the Live at Home Program, which was based in North Carolina. And um, as, uh, lots of other scholars have written about this as well. And apparently this was a slogan um, that was used in a lot of um, political um, conversations. And the idea is that you should, you know, if you're living in a rural place, produce enough um, food to sustain yourself. So you should be able to quote, live at home. And, you know, earlier in the century, this seems an absurd idea. It's like, of course you live at home, where else would you live? You know, if, if it's a subsistence-based economy. Um, but as you move in, into industrialization and then also a cash-based economy. So even if you're still farming, um, you know, post reconstruction, post beginning of the 20th century, on into the 30s, into the depression years, you've got a lot of farmers, especially in the South, who are tenant farmers or sharecroppers, and the primary crops that they grow are not edible. So they're growing cotton, they're growing tobacco, um, often they don't own the land that they're living on. And what that can create is a food shortage for those families, because even though they spend all day in the fields, it's not tending to their own gardens. 
And so um, Governor Max Gardner, O. Max Gardner, was the governor of North Carolina during this time. And he made this one of the sort of big slogans of his campaign, this live at home program. And it was uh, really specific recommendations for what each family should grow for themselves. They should have a cow. They should have X number of chickens. He might recommend a pig. I can't remember if he recommends a pig or not. Um, And like really specific recommendations for, you know, this much corn, this much tomatoes, et cetera. And lots of information about that in cooperative extension materials at North Carolina State in the in the archives there. He even had a live at home dinner at the governor's mansion. And I found a menu for that dinner. And it was like a 1930s version of a farm to table menu. So it had multiple courses. And then uh, it would describe the dish and you got to see where it was from. So the black walnuts in the black walnut candy was from Madison County. The sauerkraut was from Watauga County. The cigarettes were from whatever county down in the in the Piedmont. Um, but long story short, what's so fascinating about this is that I realized several um, proletarian novels published in the 1930s that were about the Gastonia Mill Strike, the Lorraine Mill Strike, are also about the Live at Home program. And these writers, primarily Olive Tilford Dargan, whose pen name is Fielding Burke, and Grace Lumpkin, were very critical of the Live at Home program. And and you have to keep in mind, these, these are individual authors who are critical of the program, but what they depict in their novels, I think, is just really fascinating because you've got, in both of them, very hardworking families from the mountains who can no longer make ends meet, who try to move into a textile mill community and find success there. And not only is it very, very difficult, but they're truly unable to provide enough for themselves so that this advice that's coming from, um, you know, extension workers and these pamphlets about a live at home program seem absurd because it's like, we know how to grow our own food, but because we're spending all these hours in the mill and then we've got this tobacco side gig, there's no time to grow our own garden. So it's not lack of knowledge, it's lack of capital and it's lack of time. I really love that perspective because as you were saying, having people need a cow and chickens and possibly a pig, all of that, as you were rattling that off, it, the first thing I thought about was like the, the money you would have to have to first go purchase all of those animals and the time. And there's just so much more investment required. And I, I mean, I think we still see that today with sort of farm to table, like your time is a huge investment in that. In the land, you can't live in a mill house and have a cow on this little postage stamp of land. You got to have a barn and you've got to have water. And yes. Yeah, I, I, a problem of capital is such a good way to, of looking at it. Um, and I, I believe in this chapter, you do talk a little bit about culinary cap to culinary capital. Um, and and maybe some of the shame 
around that. I know it gets a lot more into it in the next chapter. Um, but I, I would really like to talk about that aspect of it is, is how primarily women uh, were being made to feel about the food that they were either able to grow or able to cook or even just purchase and eat. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm really into this idea. I think it's important. Um, so, you know, we've got representations of food in fiction. We've got progressive era reformers writing all these things. We've got government initiatives telling people to live at home. <laughs> and so finally in chapter four, it's like, well, okay, but what are people in Appalachia thinking about all of this, you know, it's like, you've got all these messages about you um, that are circulating nationally and you're aware of them. And so uh, I do talk a little bit about it in chapter three, but all of chapter four is about the social stigma that can be associated with particular foods. Um, and, and this idea of food shaming. And um, it, it builds on this idea by Pierre Bourdieu, who's a French theorist who has this uh, concept of cultural capital. So that capital is not just economic, it can also be cultural. And the example I, I use when I'm teaching is kind of silly, but it, it gets the point across, like in America today, would someone who has a vast knowledge of opera be valued more highly or someone who has a vast knowledge of Merle Haggard? Which one has more cultural capital in 2023 in mainstream America? I don't know. You decide. Um, but one of Bourdieu's big points is that this is hugely and entirely dependent on context and time. So that what's really valuable in the 1800s might be the opposite 100 years later or 50 years later, or even at the same time, but in a different place. And, and then there's a subset of this um, called culinary capital so that you think about not the caloric value of food but the cultural culinary capital of food. So it also gets into this idea of aspirational eating so that you might eat foods that are not necessarily familiar to you or even all that appetizing just to raise your social status. Um, or you might, you know, kind of force yourself to learn this hierarchy of wines, for example. So you know what pairs with what foods just to appear as though you're in a certain um, social class. And so that's what chapter four is really trying to get at. And I do discuss some fictional representations, but I also discuss memoir. Um, so we've got, you know, these first person accounts of people talking about food shaming and how in one context, fried chicken might be awesome and like your favorite thing to eat. And in another context, you're ashamed of it because you brought it from home. And really what you want to do is buy the food at the train station. Again, a, a, an issue of capital. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, were, was there anything in the memoirs that you read that kind of surprised you about how they were perceived? Yeah, I mean, surprised me in a like sad way. Um, you know, I, I write a lot about Cratus Williams, who is really important in Appalachian studies. Um, he became a dean at Appalachian State in Boone 
And in his um, personal writing, he talks about this big shift from when he goes from Kentucky to Ohio and bananas show up again. He's in a train station. His mother brings fried chicken. He's embarrassed. Everybody else has bought bananas at the, at the fruit stand. And that's what he wants to. And, you know, he's observing how people are eating them. So he'll eat them correctly. Um, if, if you tour the food and drink museum in new Orleans, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a big display about bananas. And, uh, apparently when they first came to new Orleans, uh, it was just such a scandal because it was considered really inappropriate to peel it and eat it because it looked phallic and that's not okay. So you had to slice them and put them in a little serving dish and eat them with a fork. Um, I don't know if that's what they did in the train station or not, but anyway, um, I, I think just the level to which he was ashamed kind of surprised me. There are also some scenes where he goes to eat at a restaurant and it's just a really stressful situation for him because he doesn't want to feel embarrassed. He's not familiar with a lot of the items on the menu. So he kind of does his best to order what seems like it will be something familiar that he knows and will eat. Um, he doesn't know what to do with the silverware. He doesn't know what to do um, with, with all the bowls and like when it's okay to start eating his dessert and when it's not, um, things like that. Um, and, and what role, I think another thing in this chapter that I was really interested in is the cooperative extension agents and the sort of clubs that were going on at the time and how women in Appalachia or in the mountain South in general felt about those things. Yeah. So I think we get the best window into that with Julia Franks's book. Um, and for listeners out there who aren't familiar with her work, she's a wonderful novelist. Um, and her first book is called Over the Plain Houses. It's set in Madison County, North Carolina, which is in the western part of the state um, in, I believe, the early 1940s. And so she's she's got a lot of information about those home extension agents. And for the men, they're often giving farming advice um, about, you know, how to get the best yield for your crop or how to take care of your cattle, et cetera. And the women are often giving domestic instruction, um, as often also happened at, at settlement schools earlier in the century and at that time. And in her reimagining of those scenes, I think readers really come to understand how hurtful and shameful some of that well-intentioned instruction could be. So that you've got someone coming into a community who's almost always not from there, giving recommendations to women in the community that they well may not be able to enact. So there's a scene in the book where the women show up to this class and they brought their casseroles and they've got food and they're so eager to share it and they want to eat. They want to eat and talk and then they'll do the class. The lady who's running the class, no, she wants to give the instruction and then they will eat. So it's like this power imbalance. And when she starts giving the instruction, she's talking about running water. She's talking about electricity. She's talking about all this equipment. And a lot of these women don't have that in their kitchens. And so it's kind of a moot point. 
And it also makes them feel inferior um, in, in the novel, in her imagining of it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to quote from your book because I really did love this line that in reference to Frank's novel is and that whole vignette that you just described is uh, quote, what it really teaches them is to feel ashamed of their kitchens and the food that comes out of them. Yes. And I thought that was a very poignant, poignant thing to, to note. And it. I know, I know we're going to get there, but it, it stirs up a lot for me too, when I think about how popular Appalachian food is now, which I think is a good thing, but it's not without its baggage. And, you know, this, this history I think is, is really significant so that if you go back in time, just a little bit, you've got people feeling the way that you just described. Yeah. This is a very recent past that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't all shameful. We get to chapter five and things are starting to be looked at in more of a positive light. Yes. Um, did you want to ask a question? Sorry. <laughs> um, no, just can you can can we talk about some positive representations of mountain food and people? Before I really started working on Foodways work. I had noticed that Appalachian food was getting really popular. I mean, I remember, I think it was the early 2000s. I was on an airplane and I read this issue of the Wall Street Journal and it had a column by Martha Stewart and she was using ramps. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and, and then ramps were on Emeril Lagasse and his show. And then when I started um, my job at UNC Asheville, that was in 2008, there was, there was a big dinner at the Biltmore Estate featuring Appalachian food. And I thought, well, this is curious. I mean, this is cool, but this is unexpected. And even then I was thinking, but I think Appalachian writers have been celebrating it like a long time ago. Like this, this is not a new thing to celebrate Appalachian food, at least in Appalachian literature. So I did feel strongly that I, I needed a chapter to counter the one about food shaming because that chapter is such a bummer. <laughs> and so I wanted to look for examples of writers who were writing lovingly about their food traditions. And there are tons of them. Um, I think the earliest one that I discuss is mid 20th century. Um, Harriet Simpson Arno's book, The Dollmaker, is a heartbreaking book. So don't go looking for uh, a pick me up with that one. But um, the way that she writes about food makes it clear that the protagonist really values the, the food from the place that she comes from. Um, and then moving forward in the 20th century, there are lots and lots of examples. Um, Denise Jardina is one of them, a West Virginia writer, Crystal Wilkinson. And if folks don't know about her work, it's really astonishingly wonderful. She just rotated off as poet laureate for the state of Kentucky. She's a founding member of the Afrolachian Poets, 
and she has a brand new food memoir coming out January 23rd called Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Praise Songs, excuse me, for the Kitchen Ghosts, and it's got recipes, and it's memoir, and I just cannot wait to get my hands on it, but um, I write a lot about her work in chapter four and five, and uh, she has done a lot to bring attention not only to Appalachian food, but to Black women in Appalachia um, who have been there for generations that, you know, are are very under-recognized. Um, so yeah, that, that chapter is, is all about celebration before it was trendy. You bring up a good point that we really haven't talked about yet. And that is the fact that it wasn't just poor white people living in the mountain South. Um, does that show up or how does that show up in literature? It's so important. I really can't emphasize it enough. Um, there's a whole history that we don't have time to talk about. I won't go into too much, but but there's a huge history of whitewashing Appalachia that goes really back to 1880s and before, but it, but it was especially prominent then because a lot of the fundraising efforts that were going on during progressive era reform tried to capitalize on this myth of, quote, pure Anglo-Saxon stock that was considered more appealing to donors rather than recognizing the indigenous people who were the first Appalachians who were here long before settlers came, um, this sort of settler colonialism that took over the region. Um, It was considered more appealing than recognizing both free people of color and people who were descended from enslaved Africans. Um, and the enormous immigrant workforce that populated the coal fields. So there's great diversity in Appalachia. And one of the the effects of that whitewashing is that it carries over to food depictions in really twisted, weird ways. So, you know, if you think of Appalachian food, one of the first things people often say is corn, cornbread um, or moonshine. You know, I mean, if you don't have to go too far to get the depiction of the lanky, listless mountaineer, the Esquire magazine, Paul Webb cartoon from the 70s. Um, and it's always associated visually with white people, but that completely ignores its indigenous roots. Um, and Shalu, the Cherokee corn mother and the three sisters, the corns, beans and squash. And there are lots and lots of examples Um, of that, which is one of the reasons that this this huge popularity of current Appalachian food worries me, because it's easy to sort of implicitly continue that whitewashing if you're not really asking some questions about the origins of this food that's become so popular. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to get into that. the sort of fetishization of this type of food. And um, I know I'm fairly certain you mentioned Chris Offit's piece, uh, Trash Food. Yes. In there. And, and yeah, I would just really love to talk about how trash food has become elevated and where does that leave people who have been eating this food for a very long time? Yes. So, so much to say about that. Um, 
So I, I should, my, my disclaimer is that I'm glad that Appalachian food is getting recognition. It deserves it. It's delicious. It's awesome. Um, and I, I commend the chefs who are doing that work. So this is not a criticism of them in any way. Um, and I enjoy going to those restaurants when I can work it into the budget. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, these are, these are delicious places and, and dishes. Um, but at the, you know, Turn of the 20th century, coarse people equal coarse food. Very problematic. So now Appalachian food is, is valued, is foodie food. Um, I, I forget, people are not going to see the camera. The Bon Appetit magazine, the April issue, has a 16-page spread on Appalachian food called Appalachia Anew. So it is hot. It's in the New York Times. It's in the Washington Post. It's everywhere. And yet public perceptions of mountain people have not been elevated in the same way. So the food has been, but the way I would argue, the way that mainstream America conceives of, thinks of, perceives Appalachian people is every bit as problematic as it was in 1900 or more. Um, and so now the food that's often associated with mountain people is what often calls trash food. So highly processed food, um, that in some cases is all that's available. If you live in a food desert, if you live in an area that's been ravaged by mountaintop removal, um, if you don't own the land that you live on, if you work multiple jobs, at one time. There are lots of reasons why people would eat food that's not the most nutritionally sound. It's almost always cheaper. We know this. Um, but that's become this kind of cultural shorthand to the extent that people have trash food parties. Um, and that is often upper class, especially on college campuses, which is this strange dynamic of um, culinary slumming. And, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be funny. And what do you eat? You know, pork rinds and um, Twinkies. And I don't know what, quote, those people eat. It's deeply problematic and hurtful. I'm just grappling with the idea of separating people from their food, of trying to make them into two separate silos where they no longer interact, it just seems very impossible to do. Yes, yes. And um, I think the writer who writes about this in, in such a brilliant way is Robert Geip. Um, he's from Bristol, but he has lived a long time in Kentucky, and he's got this wonderful trilogy of illustrated um, novels. He's careful to say they're not graphic novels, they're illustrated novels. Um, so the first one is Trampoline, the second one is Weed Eater, the third one is Pop, and it follows um, the Jewell family in Kennard County, Kentucky, which is an area that has tons of mining and mountaintop removal. It's an area that's also got a lot of opioid um, addiction and crisis and in his books, there's also a lot of violence, both within and outside of families. So it's some, some difficult material, but it's also really funny. He, he does the Flannery O'Connor thing, like really hard subject matter, also really funny. 
The third one is about the Appalachian food craze. And the way that he renders it is so brilliant because the protagonist is this young girl, Nicolette, who uh, is having a very hard time, but she loves cooking and she makes traditional recipes, but she innovates. So instead of apple stack cake, she has lemon poppy seed cake. Instead of regular mac and cheese, she adds gorgonzola. And her mother is just sort of scandalized and is like, what are you doing? Um, but at the, at the end of that book, um, the characters have a party and there's apple stack cake and the mother gets so tired of it and sick of it. And she throws the apple stack cake out on the, on the hillside. And there's a section, which I might be able to find here in just a second, where she um, explains, I went in there and seen that cake so perfect. And I thought to myself, I don't want to see that cake on Instagram. I want us to eat it and then us remember it. I don't want to see it online, all cropped and filtered and looking like an advertisement for something. I just want it to be cake, a cake we ate together. I just want it to be the love we had for one another. And so it's this beautiful reminder that for anybody who is fetishizing, that people have been making and eating this food for a really long time. And if you want to sit down and have apple stack cake on the table beside an oatmeal cream pie and some Vienna sausages, which is what happens at the end of the book, then awesome. Go for it. It doesn't make it any less authentic or true. That's a really beautiful passage. I love it. I really, really, really love it. Um, so that we're kind of at the end of the book and this is the point I just want to ask, is there anything that we didn't touch on or anything that maybe you couldn't put in the book that you wanted to talk about? Oh, let's see. Um, I would have liked to have done more with the recipes in my grandmother's cookbook and um, yeah, and to have, you know, done more of a deep dive there, I think. And else let me think for just a second oh well I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler but that's that's okay um I didn't even realize until I was almost done writing the book that there's a the page in my grandmother's cookbook where on one side she's got a handwritten recipe for blackberry pudding that's really meant to be a cake topping and so that would be a very traditional mountain thing I mean these ingredients are gathered on the farm it's handwritten, um, it's, it's not particularly elaborate. And then on the other side, she had saved um, a recipe from what I think was probably a glass baking dish, it's round, and it's for banana upside down cake. And I thought, how perfect that she's like using bananas. She knows what bananas are. She saved the recipe <laughs> and they're on pages that meet together. You know, it's just like this perfect visual for what Guype is talking about in his book that, you know, this is not a land stuck in time. There are food traditions, but people also buy things at the grocery store. It's not, it's, it's messy. Yes. And delicious. <laughs> Messy and delicious. Yes. 
Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me today about Appalachia on the Table. I hope everyone reads it because it is such a good book. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I hope I hope people enjoy. <laughs>